flaws that are found with the theory. Second portion will be working on and discussing evolution as a worldview. And uh, the reason we're doing this form is really to prepare you for your high school experiences, but also, maybe more importantly, uh, your college experiences. I think most of you are either in college or probably will be going to college soon. And uh, you'll find that evolution is really prevalent in a lot of college classes and a lot of high school classes. Uh, the first portion will be, again, the scientific portion. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to go over some of the uh, definitions so we all know what we're talking about. Uh, in terms of Darwinism and evolution and macroevolution, that term is pretty much interchangeable. So if you see those three, it all means simple organisms over a long period of time changing into more complex organisms. Uh, microevolution is basically adaptation. So if you think of the example of a dog, there are German shepherds and poodles and you know, all kinds of different types of dogs, but they're all still dogs. They might be different, they might change into you know, certain types of breeds, but they don't change into other organisms. So these dogs, they're always dogs, they're not turning into birds or anything else. That is microevolution. And again, this, um, this form is really the top line. Macroevolution of really addressing the issue of, you know, did we come from bacteria that turned into larger animals that turned into monkeys that turned into humans? Um, icons of evolution. These are a few different examples that are in most um, high school and most college textbooks about the scientific proof for evolution. Uh, the problem with them is a lot of them have been disproven scientifically, and some of them have even been pretty much called out as frauds or as lies. Um, the problem is they're still in most textbooks, and you probably do recognize them. And um, I figured to make this a little more entertaining for you, instead of just lecturing on the science of evolution, we make it more like a, an evolutionary game show. So we've got some candy, we have some other food. If you can answer the questions properly, you will get your treat. So. No, just answer it as a normal question. So first icon of evolution. Does that look familiar to anybody? Anyone, anyone? Yes? What type of moth? Very good, it's a black moth. Anything more specific? That wasn't the right answer. <laughs> All right, I'll show you the title. It's the peppered moth. Does that example sound familiar at all? No. Yes. Who said yes? Let's, do you know the, the theory behind the, the uh, peppered moth? Yeah, in terms of evolution, how is that evidence for evolution? Okay, well basically, um, in Great Britain, when the Industrial Revolution came along, they put in a bunch of factories which poured pollutants into the area, mm -hmm. changed the colors of the lighter trees to a darker, more dark trees. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the white moths on that were that used to very, there used to be a lot of them in the area, got, were seen by the birds and were eaten, and the dark moths survived and bred, and all of, most of the moths in the area became dark moths. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to prove that eventually, over a series of times, supposedly, the moths would continue to adapt to their situation, and maybe later 
Mm-hmm. Okay. He gets candy for that one. <laughs> Did everybody hear that response? Basically, the picture on the right, there are two moths. There's a black moth and a white moth. You can't see the white moth. On the second picture, there again are a white moth and a black moth. You can see the white one. You can't see the black one. Well, you can, but they're hard to see. It's up there. Point being, <laughs> birds can't see the white ones on the white trunk. Birds can't see the black moth on the black trunk. Therefore, the black moth is more fit, and natural selection will say that that moth will survive evolutionarily. Problem is, these moths don't actually perch on tree trunks. They'll stay mostly in the leaves of trees. And so the argument that you know birds will see some on the trunks and won't see the others is pretty much a fallacy, or it's a lie. The um, moths in this picture are actually glued on the tree trunks by the scientists. So not the best uh, evidence for evolution. Second one, anyone see this as a familiar uh, picture? Anyone? <laughs> All right, we'll show the title. Okay, they're embryos. Embryology, does that sound familiar? Sort of. Okay. Do you know something about it? Um, I think some scientists maintain that since all animals and their definition is included all of the same in embryonic state, thus suggesting confidence. Okay, very good. good. Candy. Good <laughs> Basically, picture on the left shows drawings that were done kind of around the time of Darwin, so back like in the 1800s. And um, there's a picture of a fish, a turtle, I'm sorry, a fish, a frog, a turtle, a chicken, and a human. And it goes basically down the, the um, steps of development of the embryo. First line, they all look pretty much the same. And then slowly, as they go through the stages, they'll look more like the animals that they are. And again, the justification or the explanation was for evolution is that we all have a common ancestor, and so we all kind of look the same as embryos. The problem with this is he pretty much made up the drawings. The, uh, the biologist that was working on this project um, either was inaccurate or, or just really pretty much fraudulent about the drawings. If you look at the picture on the right, the um, top line is again the, the fraudulent drawings. The middle line is what the organisms actually look like at the beginning stages of their development. And you can see that the uh, fish, the turtle, the uh, chicken and the human and the, the uh, frog all look very different, even at the early stages. So that, that middle box on the right-hand side, that's what we actually look like. And so you really can't make that conclusion that we all had some common ancestor because we all look very different at our early stages of development. How about this one? Mm-hmm. Very good. They were Darwin's finches. When he went on his voyage around um, uh, the Pacific Ocean, he came across the Galapagos Islands. And it was a fairly special place because the, the animals on those islands were isolated from the rest of the mainland for a very long time. So there were very um, specialized animals there, very unique animals. And uh, Darwin looked at the, fi the finches specifically and um, basically he made this natural selection assumption for them. The, um, the finches all show different types of beak size and beak shape. 
and you can see the, the whole variety there. And it was based on what they eat. Um, the finches on the right-hand side there with the large beaks, they um, have crushing bills, and they can crush through you know, like hard um, seed pods and eat the seeds of plants and uh, of trees. So Darwin looked at these finches, and he looked at their beaks, and he noticed that if there was a long period of no rain, and there was not a lot of food around, the, um, the size of the beaks actually started to get larger. And um, basically what was happening is the animals that had, lar had larger beaks could crush um, harder seed pods and could get to the food source. The birds with smaller beaks really couldn't do that, and so they starved and they died. The uh, conclusion that Darwin came to is that you know, these beaks are getting larger, they're evolving, and so they are surviving. Now, the problem with this theory was... Um, Does anybody know what the problem is? Yeah, yeah. Any ideas? The flaw in that argument? Yeah. Right, I mean, were the birds changing into anything else? Right, and so we see that you know, these birds, their beaks were changing, but they were still birds. They weren't you know, growing arms instead of wings or anything. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly, and that's a very good, oh. <laughs> underhand, underhand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, I'll go over <laughs> so basically, that was just showing changes within a species, and that happens a lot. That um, you know, an animal will change, but it doesn't turn into a different animal. Next, we have any ideas? This is a fairly easy one. No. Nah. Nah. Nope. <laughs> Who said fly? They get candy. <laughs> All right. These are an example of um, the four-winged fruit fly. Any idea as to what the uh, theory is behind this? Good try, but not quite. <laughs> okay, basically what the scientist said was, if you look at fruit flies in a general population, a lot of them will have some sort of mutation. So some might have white eyes instead of red eyes, or wings that are shriveled, or in some cases, they'll have four wings instead of two. And so the argument is, oh, they, you know, they got these wings by just a mutation. It was a problem with their genes. And so they have this extra set of wings. It's a mutation, but hey, if you got two extra wings, you'll be much better off. You'll be a stronger flyer, and just, you know, you'll be able to survive much better with these extra wings. The problem is these wings have no muscles attached to them, and so the flies actually are hindered by the extra wings instead of um, benefited by them. So basically, these four-winged fruit flies will die instead of survive. So you can't really make that claim that you know, this mutation that gave them these extra wings made them more fit, or that they're evolving to something stronger. Basically, they um, are mutated and will eventually die. Any ideas? Bacteria. Okay. Good. Yeah. Bacteria. Specifically, they are antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That sound familiar at all, or 
Anybody want to guess what the, the evolutionary assumption is? Can you expand a little bit? <laughs> yeah. That over time, bacteria adapted itself to not be killed by antibiotics. But like they grew immune to the antibiotics. Right. So basically, if you had like a petri dish with bacteria in it and you add some antibiotics, some of the bacteria will die because antibiotics kill bacteria, but some won't be killed by it because they have this genetic mutation that makes them immune to it. The, um, so, you know, again, it's showing that this mutation is making them stronger because they can survive the um, antibiotics. The problem with this theory is if you take those mutated bacteria and, you know, take them out of the petri dish, put them back in with regular bacteria that aren't mutated, they actually don't survive because they aren't as strong as the regular bacteria. So again, we'll see that you know, they have this mutation that kind of looks like it's making them stronger or more fit to survive, but actually they are, again, hindered by this mutation and they will not survive. Any ideas on these pictures? Starting on the right, what's that a, a picture of? Common ancestors. Okay, common ancestors, tree of life. What about on the, um, on the left? Okay, it's appendages. Do you remember the, like the science behind looking at appendages and similar structures? The term for that? <laughs> well, those are fingers. But <laughs> yeah? Right. And the, the scientific term they'll use for that is homology. And basically, if you look at the tree of life on the right, starts with protists and then kind of grows into all the different organisms that we have until finally the most complex organisms are up at the top. So the theory then is with homology, if you look at certain structures, and they're called homologous structures, in different organisms, you'll see similarities. In the picture on the upper left, you have the wing of a, of a bat, the um, flipper of a whale, a horse leg, and a human arm. And you can see some similarities between the fingers or the finger-like structures, the shoulder blade, just the different, the different organisms have a similar layout to their structure. And so do, the argument that um, Jacob talked about is since they have these similarities, then that really proves that we did come from some common ancestor because, you know, my arm looks a lot like the flipper of a whale. It even has little <laughs> finger structures and all that, so we must have come from the same organism. Um, problem with that is, well, does anybody know the, the problem with that theory? Okay. The, with the aid of genetics and um, DNA, we're finding out that though these structures look similar, different genes will cause them. And um, if you look at the picture on the bottom, there's a fly and a, uh, a wasp. And um, you can tell they have a fairly similar body structure big eyes, the abdomen, the thorax, and the wings and all that. So if we look at homology, we'll say that, you know, they look similar, they must have had a, a common ancestor. Again, the problem genetically is different genes cause the body shapes in the two different organisms. 
And so what that means is, you know, if we did have a common ancestor, then similar genes in the fly and similar genes in the wasp should be causing the body formation. But the actual facts are that different genes are causing them. So there really isn't some sort of common ancestor that, um, that they both shared. Finally, any ideas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same. The thing at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little single-celled or, or single-celled organism. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It just doesn't seem logical. <laughs> and we'll get more into that, uh, more into that later. And finally, the last slide for the science portion, so it's your last chance for candy. What uh, pictures do we have here, and what is this slide talking about? Like the circular reason is to, uh, like they dated the rock mm -hmm. first, and then they, when they found the fossils, the rock was dated, they found what the rock was, based on what they were in the sun. Okay, so it's actually not what I was talking about, but that, yeah, that is accurate. There are different, I mean, as you can see, the time scale goes from the present all the way down to about, well, millions of years ago. And there are some assumptions based on, you know, the layers of rocks of what the age of these fossils are. And the, um, the theory is the older the fossils are, the more simple they, were, they will be. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Maybe afterwards. The, um, so again, if you look at that tree of life, we all started from these simple single-celled organisms and got more complex. Then we should see simple organisms at the bottom of the time scale and then getting more complex as you go up. The problem is the um, period called the Cambrian period, which is circled there in red, there is something called the uh, Cambrian explosion. Does anybody know what that is? Yeah, right. Basically, in this period, scientists have found a lot of fossils, and um, these fossils are of a lot of different organisms, a lot of different animal types, and a lot of different complex organisms. And so instead of seeing you know, simple fossils in the beginning and then them getting more complex, there is a very large number of complex fossils all right in that time period. So that you know, sounds more like Genesis than you know, evolution over a long period of time. If suddenly, there were a lot of animals that were very different from each other in a very short period of time. And also, another problem with the fossil record, there are no transitional fossils. Who knows uh, what a transitional fossil is? Right. I mean, if, you know, if we say that evolution is, you know, an animal, <laughs> an animal slowly develops and changes over time, then you would think there are organisms that, you know, have these random parts that are kind of between one type of animal to another. So you look for, you know, they say reptiles turn into birds. So there should be some sort of fossil of some half reptile, half bird creature. 
but they haven't found any fossils like that. There are no transitional fossils that show some sort of half-organism. Every fossil is of an intact, specific type of organism. So, fossil record. I've got a quote here. Even if there were no actual evidence in favor of the Darwinian theory, we should still be justified in preferring it over all rival theories. Does that seem like a scientific statement or a statement that a, a scientist should be making? Okay, why no? Because scientists should be open to all theories. Okay, should be open to all theories. What about evidence? What role does evidence play? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what do scientists do with evidence or with facts? Right. They will take any evidence and objectively look at it and make a theory. But here we see that they're pretty much prepared to believe in evolution regardless of what even the scientific facts will show you. And any ideas as to why there is this, this mentality of just believing evolution regardless of even what the facts will show? Exactly. I mean, it's basically, evolution is not just a scientific theory anymore, it is a worldview. And I've got another pretty long quote here, but I think it's a good one. The Darwinian revolution was not merely the replacement of one scientific theory by another, but rather the replacement of a worldview in which the supernatural was accepted as normal and relevant explanatory principle by a new worldview in which there was no room for supernatural forces. Basically, what this is saying is, evolution was this scientific theory but it replaced an entire worldview of believing in God and things that were supernatural. And you know, Darwin had us all in you know, modern culture turn to looking at everything just based on what is from nature and what is really you know, tangible and not supernatural. And I shall defer to Beverly now for more discussion on evolution as a worldview. this um, form for just a few minutes and then Matt's going to take it back. Um, but before I kind of start the part I'm going to talk about, I want to see by show of hands. Um, I know most people, like Matt said, in this room are either probably in high school, going to college, in college, something like that. So um, by show of hands, people who are either in college or thinking about going into, um, in, during college, a scientific field like biology, hard sciences, chemistry, physics, raise your hands, nice and high. <laughs> okay, all right, good. Um, the rest of you guys then might be kind of thinking like, well, you know, I'm not really going into a scientific field. Why should I really care about evolution? I'm probably not gonna really need to know about it. Um, but let's see some other things. Anybody who's gonna study like psychology or sociology, anything like that, or interested in that, raise your hands, nice and high. Okay, um, what about like healthcare? Healthcare, nursing, doctors, anything? All right, um, what about education? Any future teachers? Okay, very nice. Um, how about literature, languages, English, anything like that? Okay, um, history, any history majors, potentially? No one likes history, okay. 
How about law? Anybody aspiring to be a lawyer? All right. <laughs> Anything else I missed? What was that? How about business or politics? Missed that. Okay. All right. Well, everybody who raised your hands, and even if I didn't say anything, what I hope to show you right now is that um, just through some of the examples that I've had, that the theory of evolution is going to impact your college education and your life and whatever profession that you have um, raised your hand that you're interested in. Um, it may not be because of these scientific things we talked about, and if some of it went over your head, don't feel bad because a couple things went over my head too a little bit. I have to think, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. I forget about that stuff. I learned it in like 10th grade, but anyways. Um, but it is going to be important, um, and hopefully you'll come away with somewhat of a little bit of interest in realizing why. Um, I just want to share one experience that I had. Um, I graduated from college about a year and a half ago. Uh, my degree is in occupational therapy, so it's somewhat of a health profession, but I had a lot of liberal arts classes also. And um, my freshman year, my first semester, one of my classes I had to take, History 101. And uh, history of Western civilization, beginning of civilization, right? So the first week of class, professor comes into class. And our discussion for today is, Evolution is a fact. I want you all to know that you, know, you may have been taught at home, in church, that there was some other origin to life. Um, maybe there's a God, or you're believing some story you've heard in Sunday school. But you're in college now, so it's time for you to grow up, become an adult, and realize what educated people believe. Education, evolution, is a fact, as real as this table that I'm pounding into. And that was the basis for my history class. Um, some of you who are in college might have had experiences like that, probably some that are even more extreme. Um, I had a psychology 101 professor who, he hated Christianity. He was a very staunch evolutionist in everything that he taught. Um, I remember specifically one class that he was saying some things about God and marriage and life and the different things and a lot of people were very offended and they actually got out of the class and left and as they were leaving he said oh say hi to God for me <laughs> um, and you know sometimes you have it that that aff affronting that in your face but a lot more probably you're gonna have it subtly things that you're gonna read or that you're gonna be discussing that you know it's not a Christian perspective on it but you're not sure exactly maybe how it's different or how, what to do, what to say, how to stand up to it. And I guarantee that if you go to college at some point, you will be in that situation, whether or not it's so in your face or not. And kind of what I want you to think about now is what are you going to do in that situation? Are you just going, are you going to like stand up and say something? Are you going to raise your hand in a discussion and contribute? Are you going to go talk to the professor after class? Are you going to talk to your friends who are you're in your class with and explain why you believe differently? Um, or are you just going to do nothing? Are you just going to sit in your class and be like, well, I have to learn this because it's part of my college and I might have to write a paper about it, but I know I don't believe it. My faith is over here. It's in this little corner and it doesn't really need to affect the rest of my life. And I really hope that you don't do that and that you see that the faith that we have and the Christian worldview we have, it covers everything. It covers, it can explain and you can make a solid defense to any professor. And I, I was braver than I kind of realized, I guess, in when I was in college, because I did go up to that one professor, not the history one, but the psychology one, a couple of times, 
and I talked to him, and I didn't have all the answers. I still don't have all the answers, but I made some good points because I was a little bit prepared, and I could have been more prepared, and I hope that you guys will, just way beyond this form, because we're just going to go into a little bit about how it might affect the area you're studying in, but that you'll try to be prepared so that you'll have an answer. Um, so we're going to talk just really quick, Christian worldview. Um, some of you guys might not know what a worldview is. Basically, it's the way you see everything, kind of like your glasses and how you interpret everything, where we came from, where we're going, why we're here. Um, so Christian worldview, some of the basic things, we know that we believe that God was our creator. We don't believe that we came from nothing. We don't believe that we just came from atoms. We believe God created us. We believe that the mind of God, logic, reason, information, it was all there before creation, the mind of God. Um, whereas with evolution, they believe that there was just purposeless matter and then the mind evolved. It came after. And um, also that humans are created in God's image. So we believe that we can have the mind of God in a sense we can know things, we can learn things, we can understand absolute truth. Whereas if you look at all these other, I'm sure you guys have heard that you know, truth is relative, those kind of statements. That's an evolutionary perspective. Um, and so we're just going to look at how believing that everything came from nothing, how it influences everything, all the social sciences. Um, so just to give you an example of how, how broad it is and to prove my point a little bit in saying that it's going to affect whatever area you want to go into, these are some titles of books in different um, disciplines you might be going into and how they are really blatantly with, um, influenced by Darwin. Um, so we have government, Darwinian politics, the evolutionary origin of freedom. In economics, we have economics as an evolutionary science. In law, we have evolutionary uh, jurisprudence. In education, we have origins of genesis, Darwinian perspectives on creativity. Health, we have why we get sick, the new science of Darwinian medicine, child development, the truth about Cinderella, a view, a Darwinian view of parental love. And in uh, business, we have the executive instincts managing the human animal in the information age. Back to what I was saying a little bit about a worldview, just to kind of summarize it. Darwinianism, that's you know, the evolution, the science part. But then we have this thing called pragmatism, and most of you probably have heard of postmodernism before. And that's the philosophy and the way of looking at life that all that's here is matter, all it is is just purposeless, meaningless. And we're going to look at how that affects all these areas of culture that we're living in and dealing with. Um, all right, so first we have psychology and sociology. And this is just kind of briefly some of the things you might encounter. And I want you to think about how these go back to what we talked about with Darwin and believing that everything came from nothing. Um, in psychology, we have that if natural selection produced the human body, then that must account for all of our behavior, um, all of our beliefs. So everything that we do, it's just we do what comes naturally to us. We're animals. And what, what works best, what's adaptive. In sociology, we have that you know, society is only possible because or this, because the solitary savage individual is like an animal. He can be socialized and become palatable more. Um, in law, we have, you know, we're not anymore, we're not looking at some divine standard of law that came from a god that we're just we're implementing here. Law, is, it's now evolving with us. It's, it's evolving with us as we go. And um, do you guys know what Roe versus Wade is? You guys know what that is? Um, that was the decision of the Supreme Court in the 70s that legalized abortion. And um, one of the justices who was on the Supreme Court, Harry Blackman, he said that abortion must be considered in relation to 
population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial issues. So in other words, he's saying, oh, you know, I think even though we've said before abortion is murder, but now there's too many people, the world's getting too dirty, you know, some races are maybe getting too big. So, you know, because now it's going to play a good part in our culture, we're evolving that it's not, it used to be legal, but now it's legal. So just think about how that, that changes your perspective on law. Um, philosophy, there's a lot you can say on that, but basically there's no truth out there. We make it as we go along, we find it. Um, uh, education, those of you who are in college, if anyone's in college to be a teacher, you may have heard of um, constructivist theory. And basically that's the idea that um, we're evolving in our learning. We're not, the teachers aren't out there. You guys don't have the answers as teachers. There's nothing that you can actually teach your students that's real and objective. All you're gonna do is you're gonna be able to, um, you're gonna try to reveal, uh, you're gonna get them to have their own reality, lead them to construct whatever they think is real. So there's nothing actually you can impart to them. This is evolving with us. Um, ethics and morality. You're going to hear that you need to break free from dogma. And dogma, of course, is whatever you've been taught as traditional religious values. You need to get rid of that because, see, that was someone else forcing their ideas on you. You need to find your authentic values, and that's whatever works best for you because it's going to evolve and be what works best for you because, after all, we don't know that our values are right for other people, right? Right? Um, and finally, literature, even in there. Um, the idea of, of literature with evolution, ideas and words, tools for controlling people, one beast controlling another beast. So this is just very brief, and Matt's going to go into it a little bit more. We're going to finish up. But I hope that you realize that whatever you're going into, um, you know, this is, you try to kind of force people to bring it back and realize, why do we believe this? It's because we believe it's, you know, how can people say that? It's because they're believing that they came from nothing and that there is no God in the picture. So um, just want to encourage you to, if you guys are going into those fields, really get into it and just be strong because, you know, the Holy Spirit can work through you. And even if you don't want to stand up in class, if you can talk to your friends and make a, you know, just a decent defense of your worldview and how to understand the world as a Christian and how it applies to all these areas, you can really make a big impact. So we know what a worldview is now. We see how, how Darwinism as a worldview has really affected all parts of our culture and all parts of our society. Talk a little bit now about the implications of this worldview that is pretty much in all of, um, all of our lives now outside of church. Darwinism, you know, they call it a scientific theory, and so it allows us to justify immorality. You know, we learned about our values, basically whatever works for us is what is, you know, true to us. And so we can't really make these judgment calls on what other people are doing. And so we'll see that uh, there is a scientific justification for something like rape. The Natural History of Rape, Biological Basis of Sexual Coercion, was this book written on the evolutionary explanation of rape. And basically it was saying that um, for the species to survive, rape is basically a good way to ensure that you know, you're maximizing your reproductive ability. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a slide? Second, we have infanticide, nature's baby killers. Basically, that is saying that um, if you look at a litter of cats, sometimes you know some of the kittens are small or maybe runts, and so the, the mother cat kind of ignores them and works on the, the kittens that are healthiest. And um, they pretty much make that same claim with, um, with human mothers, is that you know the infanticide, which is basically killing babies, that is just you know, evolution's way of influencing modern, um, modern mothers. And again, you know, we, we make the claim that you really shouldn't kill babies, but you know, evolution might have a different perspective on that. Bestiality. Anyone want to define what bestiality is? Having relations with an animal. <laughs> okay. So having relations with an animal. Not something that we would think of as being you know, justifiable or even really true or right or good, but from the article entitled Heavy Petting, there is somehow some sort of scientific justification for sleeping with an animal. So that's how far evolution can take you. Also, Bill Clinton, when um, he had his whole marriage infidelity issues back in the White House, instead of you know, saying, oh, he shouldn't be cheating on his wife, people made this evolutionary conclusion that, well, you know, perhaps instead of being like Canadian geese that have um, one mate for life, maybe humans are more closely related to some sort of common ancestor like a walrus. And the walrus is a type of animal that instead of having just you know, one wife, it'll have like a whole harem of female walruses. So basically the, the assumption is that, well, Bill Clinton's like a walrus. It's just you know, evolutionarily, he was just not designed to have one wife. So that is just a brief example. Some of them are fairly you know, scandalous, I guess. But I mean, evolution can really make people come to some very odd conclusions. Second point is just the proliferation of ridiculous theories. As was stated before, you know, scientists do not want to believe in anything else aside from evolution because if they do that, that means they have to believe in some sort of higher power. And they, just like most or many humans, just cannot allow themselves to believe in a god because they want their own independence and their own freedom. So they, they have some, some other theories of how we got here. It wasn't God that created us, but the cosmos does not exist unless observed. Thus, the universe brought forth life in order to exist. Uh, similar quote, the universe wants to be known. So basically, you know, instead of coming to the conclusion that there is some higher God that created all of us, basically, you know, since the universe was here before humans, it really wanted to be known and understood. And so through evolution, it had people form with minds that could observe it and therefore give it existence and give it meaning. Now, does that sound like either a logical or a scientific theory? Any, <laughs> any agreement with that? Because I don't think it is very scientific or even very logical, and yet, yeah. Right, I mean, it's very circular logic that, you know, somehow the universe just wanted to be known and so made something to know it. 
Again, more implications. It basically you know, will take Christianity, God, morality, truth, anything absolute, it will basically just remove it from culture. Uh, one quote, in my senior year of high school, I accepted Jesus as my savior and became a born-again Christian. I underwent a deconversion in graduate school when I studied evolutionary biology. And uh, I like his phrasing, this, the deconversion, and that's very often what happens. I think something like 80% of students that have, an, had, have had an experience with Christ in high school will kind of fall away from their Christian faith after college. And it's very much because of just this evolutionary theory that says, you know, there is no God, we just kind of came from nothing, and there is no truth. Uh, Stalin, who, while he was studying in um, a Russian seminary to be a priest, he, he read Darwin and came up with this statement that, you know, they're fooling us, there is no God. And Stalin then became this dictator that tried to make an atheistic nation and kill millions of people. And um, the roots of that were evolutionary theory. Uh, evolution is purposeless, meaningless matter in motion. Again, just that idea that you know, there's no point to anything. Why believe in something absolute if we just you know, were formed randomly by mutations? And then finally, because of Darwinism, theological dogmas and philosophical absolutes are at worst totally fraudulent and at best merely symbolic of deep human aspirations. So basically it's saying things like religion or Christianity, that was just made up by people to make themselves feel better. And finally, nature is all that is or was or ever will be. Nature is you, nature is me. Does anybody have the uh, Berenstein Bears nature guide at home? Not the nature guide. Not the nature guide, okay. <laughs> I too had a very large collection of Berenstein Bears. Do you have the nature guide? You better get to burn it. <laughs> the, um, the statement here that is said by the Berenstein Bears is that, you know, nature is all that ever was or ever is. There is no God or anything supernatural. It's, you know, just nature. It's what you can see and touch and feel. And, you know, if, if this evolutionary concept is all the way down to the kindergarten level in the Berenstein Bears children's books, then that's very good evidence that, you know, this worldview is really affecting all parts of our life. So, what are we to do? Um, first, be aware of the scientific evidence for, um, for our beliefs against evolution. And um, we'll start with intelligent design. I, mean, I think by now, when you just look at the complexity of God's creation, of us, of plants, of ecosystems, of the universe, of all these things, it just doesn't seem logical that it just happened randomly and by chance. If you look at the, um, the probabilities of these, you know, organisms forming randomly or you know, all the different things that should happen in evolution, the chances are pretty close to zero that all of this could have happened just by chance. And again, the divine foot in the door, that's just a, a phrase that some evolutionists use to explain why they're you know, holding on to their evolutionary viewpoint or worldview. It's because if they let go of that, it's the divine foot in the door. It's you know, acknowledging that God does exist and they just are not prepared to do that. So we have some scientific evidence on our side. We've gone over some of the flaws with evolution. I want to go over now some of the scientific evidence that we can use to scientifically and logically defend our Christian viewpoint. Irreducibly complex systems. Well, the answer's up there, but who, uh, does anybody have any experience or knowledge of irreducibly complex systems? Or would you like to rephrase the slide? I'll get candy. <laughs> All right. 
I'll explain it. The um, basic idea is that there are certain systems that have different components. And all of those components need to be in place for the, the system or the machine to work. So an example is the mousetrap. If not all the parts are there, then it's not going to catch a mouse and it's not going to function. Same idea like the human eye or just different, um, different organs or tissues. All the parts need to be there for it to work. Uh, the picture we have here, any ideas as to what that is? Who's that? Okay. Yes, Candy. <laughs> that is a uh, bacterial flagella. Does anybody know more information about that? What is a flagella and why is this an important, irreducibly complex system? Okay. It's kind of like a tail or a propeller. It moves the bacteria around. And um, if you look closely on the right there, that's um, an image of this microscopic structure. It's at the cellular level, so it's you know, very small. And yet, you can see it's very complex. It's composed of, of about, I think, 14 different protein parts that make this machine. And uh, it can revolve at, I think, 100,000 rotations per minute. And it, if you look at it, it resembles a machine that would be built by a human, almost like an outboard motor. Because it you know, spins around, it can stop and spin the opposite direction. It's a very complex machine, and yet it's in you know, the cell of a simple bacteria. And uh, the argument we have to defend the, uh, just the idea of intelligent design and you know, that God created this, that if you look at all of those parts, they all need to be there for it to work. If one of the parts is missing, the flagella won't work, so the bacteria won't be able to move, and so it won't survive. And um, how does that seem contrary to evolution? What do we know about how an organism might form evolutionarily? Mm -hmm. well, the evolution, the basic principle is that piece by piece, the animal turns from like a, uh, a reptile to a bird. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we have this, this little mechanism here, if evolution was right, then, you know, it would start with that bottom piece, and then maybe the middle piece would randomly appear by some genetic mutation, and then finally the last piece would attach, and, you know, suddenly this bacteria can move around faster and is, you know, fit because of evolution. Problem is, all of those parts need to be there at the same time for it to work, and so basically, evolution cannot possibly create that because things like that don't just fall into place randomly. There has to be some sort of intelligent creator behind that. And finally, information, information theory is kind of like a new, new field in science as we're working on the human genome and just learning more about genes and DNA. Uh, I got a picture here of protein synthesis. Who can give a, a brief overview of protein synthesis? Oh, all right. <laughs> Let's hear it. Basically, it's the RNA. Do you want to go point it up? <laughs> OK. Mm -hmm. Protein will come along and copy it, and make another copy and send it to another part of the cell. And then mm -hmm. uh, another protein will come and start <coughs> transcripting. Like the ribosome will come along down the thing and whatever, and then make a protein. So 
chain of amino acids, and that's each three of those letters mm -hmm. will form one of the amino acids, and then I'll take a big protein. Okay. So as we, very good. As we see in the, the image here, we have a nucleus on the left. There's DNA that unravels and you know, it has the four nucleotides, the adenine, thymine, and all that. And that code is what determines everything about an organism, the hair color and you know, how tall you are and things like that. Basically, that information in the DNA that is then copied and turns into proteins, which are really kind of building blocks of life and that every organism needs, that information needs to be understandable and it needs to be accurate for the proteins to be made for the organism to survive. And um, we have three different ways to account for information. We have chance, we have law, and we have specified complexity. Chance is like dropping a handful of Scrabble letters. You know, maybe two would fall next to each other and make a word like it or two or something. But even that is not a very good chance. And um, that can only account for, you know, like a simple arrangement of information. Then we have law, which is only repeatable patterns. DNA is not a repeatable pattern. It's kind of like an alphabet. It makes words, and words are not repeatable patterns. Each word has a different set of letters that make it a word. So there has to be what is called specified complexity. Basically, that's saying there is some sort of intelligent sender that created this message and sent it to someone that can read the message and understand it. It's the same with the um, cell. You know, God made this, this alphabet of nucleotides in DNA, and it is a message that is specific and complex for the organism. And so it makes sense in the nucleus, it goes out into the cytoplasm, it's turned into a protein, and it all makes sense. And you cannot say that, you know, chance or anything else accounted for that. Just like a letter, you have to know the language you're speaking to write that letter to send to someone else so they can understand it. Finally, in addition to science, just asserting our Christian worldview as you know, both logical, scientifically, and philosophically. If you look quickly, um, Darwinism is just as much a religion as Christianity is. Um, quote, evolution came into being as an explicit substitute for Christianity, a secular religion with meaning and morality. And so, you know, the argument that we can't teach intelligent designer creationism in schools because of, you know, separation of church and state, it's not really an accurate argument because Darwinism makes just as many claims about, you know, where we came from, where we're going, how we should live, as Christianity does. And so, to say Darwinism is just science and Christianity can't have any role in, you know, scientific education is not accurate. And finally, just defending the logic of the Christian worldview. Our testimony, in terms of, you know, how we came to know Christ, that's very important, but when we are in a situation like a college campus where you've got a raving evolutionary professor bringing your Bible and saying, well, Genesis says, is not really the place to start with someone like that. You need to address them and really attack them on their level. And they're very much in the scientific and philosophical level. And so we need to know what science and what philosophy we can use to defend our Christian worldview. And then after that, you know, once you've shown that what you believe is valid, not just some, you know, some silly religion that we created ourselves, then you can say, you know, that's what I believe scientifically, here's what I believe in terms of personal experience. So lead them to the Bible, but don't just, you know, thump your Bible at them and expect your personal testimony to convince a scientist that what he believes isn't true.
And again, just you know, understanding your Christian worldview as being logical. It just makes sense that there is some higher being that has put everything in place that we see in creation. And that you know, there has to be ultimate truth. Because when you take evolution and really bring it to its logical conclusion, you know, what does it mean? It's a very depressing, it's a very bleak outlook on life. You know, this idea that nothing is wrong. Well, okay, marriage used to be man and a wife. Now it's, you know, two men, two women. What's to say it can't be a man and a horse or a man and a dog? You know, that's just as much, that's just as justifiable evolutionarily speaking. And it sounds ridiculous to us, but that is the logical conclusion. If there is no truth, if there's nothing that, that is right except for what I think is right for myself, then what's stopping me from marrying anything I want to? And that's really, um, that's what we're facing now and what we're facing in the future is, you know, this worldview of evolution can really bring us to something very far from, um, from what is absolute and what is total truth and what is really the truth of God. And I've got a few references here. The um, bulk of the information came from the first book up there, Total Truth by Nancy Piercy. I think it is a very good reference to have. It's about that thick, so it's not like a book to read on the beach or anything, but it is a good good book because it addresses all parts of culture and how we, with our Christian worldview, can influence it. So I definitely recommend that book. Uh, in terms of other books, you know, they're up there. There are some websites that have some good answers too. There is information out there. It's very important that we find it and know what we believe. And, uh, well, there's not much time left, but are there any, any questions or anything I should clarify or any comments you want to make or any personal experiences already with you know, professors with an evolutionary viewpoint that they were trying to push in your classes.